we are starting a new series today on the subject of uncommon sense. You've heard of common sense, yes? Some of you, your parents, and you, you look at your kids and you wonder, where's their common sense, right? Parents, are you with me? Yeah, or especially parents of boys. You look at parents of boys and you say, my gosh, where's their common sense? You know, the way the things that they're doing and you, you sort of have to corral them. I saw a, uh, I saw a video of someone's, one of my friend's Facebook, uh, you know, feeds and, and the, the, the gist of the video was, this is why kids were tougher, you know, 50 years ago. And it had a, it was a video of a, a uh, what do you call those things, a merry-go-round? You know, you go to a playground and it spins and you grab hold of it and you hold it. Well, somebody had got this thing going 55 miles per hour. That's pretty fast. And the kids, little 12-year-old kids and such, were grabbing hold of it to see if they could hang on. And, of course, the kids would hang on a little bit, and then they'd go flying, you know, tumbling over, or the thing would bash them in the head or whatever. And none of the parents were doing anything. They were just watching. Because back then, well, you know, kids will be kids, right? But you look and you say, where's your common sense? What are you doing grabbing hold of a thing that's going 55 miles per hour? But back in the day, we did things like that. So we're going to do a series on uncommon sense from one book in the Bible that starts with P. If you've followed online, you know what this is. Proverbs. Yes, we're going to do the book of Proverbs. Okay, We're not going to do every single chapter, uh, but we're going to do a, a look at it, an overview of this amazing book. Some of you love the book of Proverbs. Most people like it. I've not heard people criticize the book of Proverbs too much. Uh, we've jumped from the book of Daniel into Proverbs. Daniel's a really, really criticized book. Proverbs, not so much, because it's got all this practical information in it, right? And, it, and we memorize some of these Proverbs, and, and we, 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 we want to open the Bible, and God, just tell me what to do. I don't, all the other stuff is too complicated for me, so we get to a book like Proverbs, say, all right, I've got it, now I just, God's just telling me what to do. Uh, the problem with that approach is it's not that simple. And if you've read the book of Proverbs, you've probably figured out that it isn't that simple. Um, Proverbs belong to uh, a sort of genre of, of literature in the Bible that we call wisdom literature, all right? Wisdom literature. Now, the, the book doesn't say that. You know, it doesn't say, well, you know, you're to categorize me as wisdom literature, you know, and so you're to read me as if I'm wisdom literature. It doesn't tell us to do that. But we, we observe as we read the Bible, and there are certain books of the Bible, in particular Proverbs, also the book of Job and uh, Ecclesiastes, especially those three. Some will put other books in there. There's debates about other books, but certainly those three most don't argue, and they say this would be wisdom literature. And in, back in that time, you had this kind of style of writing, and these books are not unique to that style, but these are the ones that we have in the Bible. We call this wisdom literature. You don't read wisdom literature the same as you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as you read, I don't know, Daniel, you, as you read Revelation, you don't read it the same way. Because 
as you read it, you see that it's talking about something quite different. It's not telling you a story. It's not a narrative. It doesn't say, you know, and this person did this, and this person did this, and this person did this, and this is what happened, and this is the story, and this is the backdrop, and this is the context. It's not like that at all. It doesn't attempt to, to predict anything. Like, uh, there's no strange visions or dreams in the book of Proverbs. It's a kind of a collection of these little verses, these little snippets, as we read the book of Proverbs, at least. And we see this in Job. We see this in Ecclesiastes. And we look at these books, and we see the overall concern of the book is to help us to make right choices in life. This seems to be the overall thrust of the book, because even as we read the book of Job, right, when we talked about it a bit on Wednesday night, you know, you've got the story of this man who's a godly, righteous man before God, and something happens in his life because of a, a bet, a wager between God and Satan, and Satan bets that Job is going to curse him and die. He says to God, all you have to do is take away all of his stuff and he, he's not going to serve you anymore because he only serves you for the things that he gets. And so he, he effectively places a bet with God. And of course, he loses the bet. And you see how, how Job loses everything in his life. In the, he comes as close to death as possible. The only thing he doesn't lose is his life, but he loses everything else. He's got these three annoying friends who, who tell him all of these, these things and say, you know, your problem is that you're a sinner, and this is why all these things, all these bad things have happened to you. And he, of course, debates with them, and he debates with God. He's got a nagging wife. His wife even says to him, give it up, Job, just give it up, curse God and die. You know why you're doing this. So she's not a help to him. His friends are not a help to him, but he keeps on going and he keeps on persevering. Book of James even comments on this in the New Testament. You have heard of Job's perseverance. So there's an overarching lesson to the book of perseverance even through difficult moments. So you're not supposed to be concerned with, well, wait a second, how come you know, this happened in my life, this specific thing. Is this God doing this to me? Is this Satan doing this to me? Does God give permission to Satan? Does Satan have power? I don't understand why this happened. What are the mechanics of it? What's the theory of it? That, that's not the point. The point is, are you persevering? So we, that's the overarching message. So we call this wisdom literature. We say, ah, the concern of the author there is that we persevere through difficult times. You read the book of Ecclesiastes, often misunderstood book in the Bible. This is a cynical version of wisdom. So in Ecclesiastes, I mean, you can use Ecclesiastes to prove that there's no afterlife because the author is approaching life in a cynical fashion. What he's doing is he's saying, this is what life would be like if God weren't involved in it. If God weren't involved in your life in a personal way, this is the way that it would be. Everything is the same. Nothing has changed. Everything is meaningless. You know, a person dies and they go the way of the animal. They turn to dust. It's over. There's no pleasure in life. I searched. It's all meaningless, 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 meaningless. But yet there's an admonition to serve God. So it's a, this is a cynical 
book. It's written with a sarcastic tone, but it has an overall thrust of, hey, remember that God wants to be personally involved in your life. You need a personal relationship with God because without a personal relationship with God, it's all meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. We call this wisdom literature. Proverbs, same thing. You've got all these little snippets, these little verses, these little idioms, these little parables that are designed to help you to make right choices in life. It's a grand book of advice. And this is what makes it so wonderful because it's got so many things in there that you can memorize. Uh, be careful. Uh, Proverbs are not always easy to understand. You've got figures of speech in there. You've got parables. The Hebrew word there means that. It's mishalem. And uh, you, you've got short, catchy phrases there. So let me give you an example just from the modern English our time, okay, about Proverbs, and see if you know your stuff here. So here's a proverb that we use all the time, or maybe some of you don't, but you probably know it. Look before you, someone said leap, two people said leap, yeah, look before you leap, that's a, that's a proverb, right? So you'll find similar stuff in the book of Proverbs. What you won't find is, in advance of committing yourself to a course of action, consider your circumstances and options. <laughs> that's a lot more words, that's a lot harder to memorize, but it kind of means exactly the same thing. Look before you leap. How many of you prefer look before you leap? Yeah, that's a little better, right? The rest is, well, you know, it's kind of like uh, what he calls Sheldon from Big Bang Theory, right? In advance of committing yourself, right? So, so this is not Sheldon from Big Bang Theory. This is look before you leap, and these things are designed that way. You will have sh the shorter, the easier it was to repeat, the easier it was to memorize. The more brief it was, the better. And so when you're reading these things, there's a few tips for you to keep in mind as you're reading the book of Proverbs, because Proverbs happens to be one of the most misinterpreted books of the Bible. People make mistakes when they read and interpret and apply the Proverbs, and in, in some cases, it ends in deep frustration uh, or uh, their, their faith starts to erode because of the way that they're approaching it. Let me give you a few examples, all right? The biggest tip for you when you read them is Proverbs are not, they are not legal guarantees from God. Now, when we, when we read wisdom literature, and I'll, I'll back my slide up here and, and talk about this for a second. When we read wisdom literature from an evangelical perspective, you say, what's that word mean, evangelical? I hear it all the time. What evangelical means in a theological sense is when you approach the Bible, your view of the Bible is that it's the inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative word of God. So that's an evangelical theology when you approach the Bible. There's a neo-evangelical approach, and that is, well, some of it may be, but some of it isn't. <laughs> so some of we pick and choose. And we say, well, this may be inspired, but this probably isn't, and we pick and choose. And then there are all kinds of variants in between. But when you go to the Bible with an evangelical perspective, which probably most of you do, how then do you say you interpret it literally? 
When you look at the book of Proverbs, how do you interpret literally? When we say we interpret the Bible literally, we don't mean literalistically in the sense of, you know, when, when, it's, when the psalmist talks about the nostrils of God, we don't think that God has nostrils, okay? That's a literalistic way. That's not a literal way. When you read the Bible in a literal way, with an evangelical angle, what you're doing is you're respecting the context, you're respecting the genre of the literature, and you're giving the author of the book in question the benefit of the doubt. All right? Uh, let me give you an example uh, from the Gospels. Uh, uh, got this online. Um, uh, there's this super popular TikToker guy who does videos. He happens to be a Mormon, actually, but he's a, he's a very learned scholar. And uh, I watched one of his videos, and uh, he, he was talking about the crucifixion of Jesus, okay? Now, here's an example of a neo-evangelical approach, or probably a non-evangelical approach. He's looking at, this, at the, the crucifixion of Jesus. Remember, Jesus said on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, right? And so this is a very important event in uh, or part of the event of the crucifixion. When Jesus mentions this on the cross, this is a reference to the 22nd Psalm. And so the authors of the Gospels pick up on this and they say, hey, there's certain prophetic pictures there in the 22nd Psalm. And they write this down in uh, Mark, writes it down, Matthew writes it down. And so in this, in this uh, TikToker's view, he says, he says, no, 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 Jesus didn't say that. Jesus didn't say that on the cross. What's going on there is that Matthew and Luke are writing the story of Jesus. They're writing their little biography of Jesus. And what they've done is they've inserted these words into Jesus's mouth to try and build a framework, to try and build a picture for their audience as if to say that he's fulfilling some sort of prophetic picture. But for sure, Jesus never said that. This is just an insertion by a zealous writer. Okay, that's not an evangelical approach, folks. That's an approach that's saying the author is trying to put a ruse over on us because the author is claiming that Jesus did say that, but, you know, some scholar in the 21st century is, no, 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 he didn't. I'm smarter than that. So when you approach it with an evangelical perspective, you give the author the benefit of the doubt. Are you with me so far? It doesn't mean that you're, you're silly. It doesn't mean you're not intelligent if you're an evangelical. It doesn't mean you're taking your brain and you put your brain aside as you read the Bible. No, you respect the context. You respect the genre of literature. Why do I say this? Because when you get to Proverbs, people sometimes make mistakes because they're not doing that. Okay? And they're getting into this literalistic Thing where they're going too far and they're trying to, for example, make a proverb like a legal guarantee from God, like some sort of warranty from God that never ever fails under any, any condition. Let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, one of the most famous ones is Proverbs 22 and verse 6. Uh, I'll do it in the old King James way. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when? Yeah, when he's old, he will not depart from it. Or in newer version, start children off on the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. 
Now, I have heard umpteen sermons on this, some of them really passionate and all of that. And they say, if you, if you bring your child to church, you dedicate your baby when your baby is born, you bring your child to church, you bring your child to kids ministry, you bring your child to youth, even if they go kicking and screaming, you bring them there, you bring them there, and you train up that child that way, and when that child is old, he's, he or she is not going to depart from it, because you did your thing, and you brought your kid to church, and you did all that, and this is a promise from God, you need to claim it, and when they're old, they will not turn from the way. I've sat down with parents who they look at this verse, they hear preaching like that, and they say, or they read books like that, and they say, but I did all those things. I, I trained up my child. I took my child to church. I prayed with my child. And my child is baptized. My baby was dedicated. They've been to Sunday school or kids ministry. They've been to youth. They were a Sunday school teacher, kids ministry, whatever. They were involved in this. They were involved in that. And they have walked away from God, and I'm getting older and older, and I'm watching them live their life totally apart from God. What happened? What did I do wrong? They're getting older too, and it seems like the older that they get, my kid, the farther and farther they get away from God. What happened to this promise? Well, folks, that's because it's not a legal guarantee from God. This is a proverb, and it's a bit of a tricky proverb. It's a little bit of a, of a parable. Start children off on the way they should go. What way? Does it say God's way? Does it say bring them to church? Does it say get them involved in kids' ministry? No, it says on the way they should go. Well, what is that way? It doesn't say. And even when they're old, they will not turn from it. Some say that, well, if you figure out the wiring of your child, you figure out what that kid wants and desires, and you, that's the way they should go, and you train them up in that way, when they're old, they're not going to depart from that way. Now, that would make sense because it would be, this, their, this is the way they are, this is the way they're designed, this is the way they're wired, and so I just come alongside and I assist them and I encourage them to, to keep on keeping on in whatever they're doing, whatever their vocation is, whatever their calling is. I just keep on doing that, and I, I affirm that, and I build those convictions in my kid. Well, it stands to reason when that kid is older, they're probably not going to depart from it. That could be a way you're looking at it. But again, it's not a legal guarantee from God. Do you understand the difference? Because if you start pushing Proverbs too far, you're going to get frustrated. Proverbs 22, verses 26 to 27. Here's another example. Do not be one who shakes hands in pledge or puts up security for debts. If you lack the means to pay, your very bed will be snatched from under you. Now, if you read this and you go too far and you make this some sort of legal guarantee from God, you will never borrow money ever. The odds of you uh, getting like a secure loan, like a mortgage, you probably would never do that. You'd probably say, well, I can't. It says, do not be one who shakes hands in pledge or puts up security for debts. That means I can't do a mortgage. But is that what it's saying? Is that the meaning of this proverb? If you lack the means to pay, your very bed will be snatched from under you. Well, I guess, I guess if I do that then, and I default on my, on my loan, I'm going to lose my bed. 
So that'd be a bad, bad idea. Never, never, never. Is this what it's saying? No, it's not what it's saying. What it's saying is you need to be very careful when you start borrowing money. Because if you borrow money and you fall into debt and bigger debt, it's like the very beds being snatched out from under you. And some of you, you know exactly what this proverb means because you read the proverb and you say, I feel it. I feel like my bed's being snatched out from under me. Because you understand what happens when you get into debt and you start drowning in it. This is a warning to not do that. So it's advice for living in a, in a good way and making right choices. You with me so far? All right, good. Uh, another problem that we have is that proverbs are worded to be memorable. They're not worded to be technically accurate. So if you're saying, yeah, but, you know, I believe the Bible is the word of God, and so the proverb has to be technically accurate and theoretically accurate in whatever it's describing, that's not the point. That's not the author's intention. That's not God's intention with it. When you do that, you're you're going in on a wrong angle there. You're trying to approach it as the word of God, but you're going too literalistic. What do I mean? I'll give you an example. Proverbs 13, 24, another famous one. This one has been criticized sometimes by the culture. Uh, Whoever spares the rod hates their children. Or spare the rod and spoil the child is the way that it, the old King James, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. Now, if you're trying to use this and make this some sort of technically accurate thing, then that means all of you as parents should go and buy rods and start using rods to beat your children, to discipline them. <laughs> Folks, you try doing that and, you, and someone sees you doing that, you're going to end up in jail. Uh, you know, he who spares the rod hates their children. I've seen Christian groups do this and uh, some small groups and and they they go and they do this and they say, this is what the Bible says and they end up in court, you know, for child abuse or whatever because somebody sees them and they say, yeah, but we're following the Bible and the Bible says this and what's it really saying? Okay, this is not supposed to be some technically accurate thing. What it's teaching you is that you need to D your children. What's the word D? You're sleeping in the rain. Discipline. Yeah, you need to discipline your kids. That's what it's saying. Because if you love your children, you're going to discipline your children. The concern of the passage is not that you should beat your children with a rod. The concern of the passage is... Don't neglect your responsibility, parents, to discipline your children. Because if you don't discipline your children, you're going to end up with children who are out of control and a danger to like themselves and people around them. You, you need to discipline them because if you don't, how are you showing that you love them? If you don't discipline them, right? And you say, yeah, 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 that makes sense. Right, that's the advice that it's giving is Proverbs 13, 24. Another one, if you want to try and be technically accurate, you know, the way of the sluggard, this is 15 and 19, the way of the sluggard is blocked with thorns. But the path of the upright is a highway. If you want to be technically, you want to try and push this to be technically accurate, the way of a sluggard is blocked with thorns. A sluggard in the Proverbs is a, is a kind of a lazy person, a morally deficient person. 
You have several words used for people like that in the Proverbs. Uh, um, a sluggard is one, fool is one, simple is one. In the Hebrew language, these are descriptions of a morally deficient person, a lazy person. So if you take this too far, well, that lazy person's way is blocked by thorns. Well, folks, you know plenty of lazy people, I'm sure, and you don't see them walking. Or Some of you say, yeah, pastor, I am lazy. And so, you don't see them walking and uh, there's thorns in their way, right? That's not what it's trying to say. It's, it's saying something different, but the path of the upright is a highway. So what's the intention here? Well, the sluggard, the lazy, morally deficient person, they're walking through life and it feels to them like there's thorns in front of their feet. It feels to them like it's difficult, it's hard, it's, it's messy. This is how it feels to them. But the person who's upright, the person who's morally making right choices, it's like there's a highway that they see that they can walk on. And they put on the gas and they can go on that highway because they see it is clear to them. Again, this is the point of the Proverbs. So you've got to read them like that. It doesn't mean that you don't believe that the Bible is the Word of God. It means that you're reading it in its proper context, okay? And also, read them as a collection. Don't, don't, don't take one proverb and don't read the little grouping around the proverb and just memorize that proverb. Be careful when you do that because some, some proverbs are designed to, you have to read two and three and four verses because they're almost like a little parable. And if you take one verse out of the context there, you may actually be interpreting it totally wrong compared to what it was intended to mean. And as you read the proverbs, you will see what I mean. So read them as a group, read them as a collection. Now I'm going to give you a challenge that you will find, uh, if you do this challenge and you do it honestly, you will find that it's going to improve your, your day, your, your week, your outlook, your perspective, your optimism. Read one chapter of Proverbs every day. You can read it very, it take you very, very little time to read Proverbs chapter one. We'll read a few verses in a moment. Read one chapter a day for the next month. That's it. If you, if you don't like reading the Bible, read that book and just one chapter a day. And when you come across one of the Proverbs that you like and that has a ring to it and that resonates with you, listen to me. I challenge you to do this. You will, it will change your perspective on life. Take that proverb and write it down. Either write it down in a little book by hand or put it in your phone or whatever and memorize that proverb. I'm telling you, you will see a difference in your life just by doing something like that. It will change the mood of your day. It will change your perspective because you are taking the advice of the Word of God. So that's a challenge for you. Read them as a collection. Some people think that Proverbs is just sort of slapped together. And there's no... Uh, pun intended, rhyme or reason to it. And it's just a whole bunch of these things that are just all jammed together. That isn't true. When you read the book of Proverbs and you study it, you will notice some pretty cool things. Number one, most of them are written by King Solomon. Solomon. So tell me a little bit about what you know about Solomon. David's son, yeah. He was the king. 
Something else about him starts with W. At one point, he's called the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon, in the Old Testament. Remember the story? There's a really famous story of Solomon and two women and a baby. You know the story? Some of you, you're shaking your head like this. It's a really, it's a graphic story. You know the story? You get two, two women, and they're, 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 one of them is saying, this is my baby. The other one is saying, this is my baby. You know, it's like one of these TV shows. Got it. This is before you did DNA testing, right? And so you got two, two women. They're, they're, you know, in court, as it were. And Solomon, he's a judge, and they're fighting, and they're saying, hey, you know this is my kid? No, this is my kid. So what does Solomon do? He says, I'll give you a DNA test. Let me, I'll do it the old-fashioned way. What's his DNA test? He says, get the guard over here and raise the, bring the baby over here and raise the sword. We're gonna, we'll just chop the baby in half. One, one, one gets one side, one gets the other side. Everybody's happy. <laughs> so that's his DNA test. And of course, the truth comes out and ah, we know whose, whose baby it is, right? And so he's, he's, he's exemplified, my point is, for his wisdom in the Bible. Hmm. Tell me something else about Solomon. Say again, louder. Temple, yeah, he built the first temple. Good, good. After that. Yeah, yeah, well, like the way you put it, Nick, didn't he lose his marbles? He wasn't so wise in the end. How wasn't he wise in the end? Yeah, his problems with the way that he governed. Uh, lots of women. This guy had a major, major thing with the ladies. Major. Exactly. So he now it wasn't uncommon to marry, uh, you know, have multiple wives and so on back then. This is very common. But this guy would marry into other religious views, and he would bring these other gods into Israel, and this caused problems. And you ended up with a civil war because of his decisions with that and his decisions with politics. And here he is writing these proverbs. Most of them are written by Solomon. You'll see this in the intro in a couple of minutes, but most of them are written by him. So remember who's writing them. This is a guy who rose and fell. This is a guy who's got a lot, a lot, a lot of experience. He probably also wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. It would make sense because he lived through the height of success and in, in some senses the depth of failure. Uh, and so he has a lot of wide, wide scope of experience to share with others and to help them to govern their lives in making wise decisions. And you will see this about every aspect of life. It's in the Proverbs. The way people handle money, the way that they handle relationships, the way that they handle uh, their work, their education, their school, their choices in life. All of these things are outlined in the Proverbs and talked about in the Proverbs. It talks about so many aspects of life. They're grouped there, there's a structure to the book. So you have chapters 1 to 9 are a general. They seem to all be written by Solomon. 
And then from chapter 10 to exactly chapter 22, verse 16, we're told at the beginning of chapter 10 that these are written by Solomon again. But we see, at least when we look at them in Hebrew, we see 375 of them in that chunk from chapter 10 to 22, verse 16. It's really interesting because the, the numerical value, or what they call the gematria, in, the, in that whole study of Solomon's name in Hebrew is 375. So probably no accident that in that chunk, before there's another break, you have 375 Proverbs of Solomon. Then right from verse 17 of 22 to chapter 24, verse 34, we're told there that these are the sayings of the wise. And we see that little group. Then from chapter 25 to 29, we're told that these are again uh, uh, Proverbs of Solomon, but compiled by those who work for King Hezekiah. And we see 130 of them in that group. Hezekiah's numerical value of his name in Hebrew is, guess what, 130. So probably no coincidence. What's the point? There's an organization to this book. There's a structure to this book. And then in chapter 30 and 31, we see that these are the sayings of Agur and Lemuel. We don't know too much about them, but this is what we have in the text. And then, uh, for those of you who might know this one, the Proverbs, any of you heard of the Proverbs 31 woman? You know, you see this description of this woman in Proverbs 31, and I mean, it's like the woman is like super, super woman. You know, she's the perfect uh, sort of shining star example in everything, in every area of life and all that. Again, if you push it too literalistic, literalistically, it's not a realistic picture, but the, the challenge is there. But people don't often know the last 21 verses of that proverb, they're an acrostic. So that means that the beginning of each verse begins with the Hebrew letter of the alphabet. So the equivalent of A, B, C, from verse 10, verse 11, verse 12, and so on. It's a Hebrew acrostic. That, that was done on purpose, again, so that you'd be able to memorize these things, so that you'd be able to remember them and understand them, and so on. So you see there's a structure to the book. Now, what we'll do as we finish here is we're going to look at Proverbs chapter 1, just the first seven verses, all right? And this gives you, I mean, the most important foundation for you as you look at the, the book of Proverbs and what it's trying to tell you really is right there in the first seven verses of the book. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Verse two, for gaining wisdom and instruction. How many of you want to gain wisdom and instruction, you know? For understanding words of insight, for receiving instruction in prudent behavior, for doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to those who are simple. Again, simple in that language would mean a morally deficient person, a gullible person, a lazy person, a person inclined to evil. Knowledge and discretion to the young. Solomon trying to remember the young people. Knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning. Let the discerning get 
guidance for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. And here it is. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. If you want to memorize one verse of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's quite significant, this, because what it's saying is not, well, you need to live your life scared of God. You know, I'm just, I just walk around scared of God all the time, and, and I'm just worried I'm going to make him mad, and, you know, maybe something bad's going to happen. Lightning's going to come from the sky. I'm just scared of God all the time. This is not what it means. When it talks about the fear of God, it's this sense of a person lives their life with the understanding that God is there, God is involved in their life, they are involved in a relationship with God, and this is the beginning of knowledge and of wisdom. In other words, it's not your intelligence that's going to get you through life. It's not how smart you are, and that's the foundation for your life. It's not how good-looking you are. It's not where you come from. It's not your, your, your parents or your grandparents or, you know, you, you were raised in the church or whatever. That's not what makes you wise. It's not how much money you make. It's not any of those things. It's not your achievements. It's not your successes. It's not any of those things. It starts with the fear of of God. It starts with your basing your life on God and a relationship with Him. That's where it starts. Don't talk to me about your intelligence. Don't talk to me about your success. Don't talk to me about your looks and all of these things. All these things are fine and dandy, but they're, they, they do not form the foundation of your life. What forms it is the fear of the Lord, and that's the beginning of knowledge. And so the challenge that that is there for us right at the beginning is do you have that? Are you living your life purely on your own fumes? It's on your intelligence, it's on your achievement, it's on your effort, it's on your own flesh, it's on your works, and as long as you're doing good in all those areas, everything is just hunky-dory in life. If that's the way that you are living your life, you're totally missing the boat according to Solomon here. He's saying what you need, sir, what you need, ma'am, what you need, young person, is you need the fear of God in your life. You need a personal relationship with God. Don't con yourself. Don't lie to yourself. Don't be gullible. Don't be a fool. Don't be simple. All those things are going to dissipate and get in the end, you'll have none of it. You'll have nothing in the end. What you need is a relationship with God. And that's the foundation. And that's the great equalizer. It doesn't matter where you come from. When you have that relationship with God, the rest of it starts to fall into place later. And that's what I want to challenge you with and leave you with this morning. If there's any musicians in the room, I see Nick is over here. You can come and play your bass or whatever. I know Rose is on the other side. We'll leave her there. Maybe Viano is around and he wants to play his cajon, whatever you guys want to do. But I want to leave you with a challenge. Do you have a personal relationship with God? 
This is so often taken for granted in church circles. But I'm telling you, even as, even as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, it's not by works that anyone should boast. It's by grace you are saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's based on the work of God on the cross, what Jesus did his death and his resurrection, and this is what saves you. And my question to you is, do you have that? And do you know that you have that? Because that's the foundation that the author of the Proverbs is challenging you with this morning. Do you have that, and do you know that you have that? Would you stand with me as we close in prayer this morning? Just want to take a moment just to be quiet for just a second and you can close your eyes if you're comfortable doing that but this is the biggest question of your life folks uh, this is the question that the scripture ultimately is asking you from cover to cover is do you have this and do you know that you have this father i pray for each person who's in the room this morning those are in the sound of my voice those who are going to watch things uh, later listen to things later on electronics in the name of jesus would you challenge people spirit of god would you speak to people and we call out to you afresh lord uh, on behalf of the people here i say lord have mercy on me a sinner jesus would you come into my life afresh? Would you forgive me of my sins? Lord, I surrender myself to you once again. Maybe young people who might be in this room, people you've been in church for many, many years, but that question may not be settled, or maybe that question is kind of slipping away. Do you have that relationship with God? Are you in a right place with God? God, have mercy upon me and forgive me and put me in a right place. I reprioritize my life and put you first once again. Would you lead me? Would you guide me? Would you teach me? Would you give me wisdom? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The Lord bless you today. Stay dry. There's a roof here. All right. You don't have to run out too, too quickly. Have a wonderful, wonderful Sunday, everybody. And remember, one chapter of Proverbs a day going to change your outlook and your perspective. God bless you.